0: Hello and welcome to this podcast of the Journal of Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition. I'm Judy Sondheimer. This podcast will abstract selected articles from the February 2012 issue of JPGN. A complete table of contents and access to complete articles can be found online at www.jpgn.org or at the Society webpage at www.jpgn.org. This issue is headlined by an invited review entitled Safe and Effective Procedural Sedation for Gastrointestinal Endoscopy in Children by Van Beek and Leroy. This paper is a careful literature review of studies on conscious sedation for pediatric endoscopy. The authors found 11 randomized controlled trials and 15 non-randomized, non-controlled studies using six different sedative regimens propofol-based, opioid benzodiazepine combination, various premedication routines, ketamine, seboflurane, and midazolam. Propofol-based sedation turned out to be the most effective regimen, with effectiveness comparable to general anesthesia. The addition of midazolam, fentanyl, remifentanyl, and or ketamine to propofol seems to increase the effectiveness of propofol without additional adverse effects. Data on midazolam, ketamine, and sevofluorane based sedation were too limited to draw conclusions. Premedication with midazolam is safe and increases measures of patient comfort with the procedures. The next article is in a replication entitled MicroRNA Profiling identifies MIR-29 as a regulator of disease-associated pathways in experimental biliary atresia by Hand and colleagues. MicroRNAs are a class of short, non-coding RNA molecules, which act as negative regulators of target mRNA stability and translation. Their role in some liver diseases is confirmed, but their role in the pathogenesis of biliary atresia has not been studied. The authors profiled liver microRNA levels in a mouse model of biliary atresia identified significantly altered transcripts, and defined the spatial expression of patterns of selected microRNAs. Two of these, MIR-29A-29B1, are upregulated in experimental biliary atresia. Using antisense oligonucleotide-mediated inhibition in mice, They delineated the full set of hepatic genes regulated by MIR-29 and identified two mRNA targets of potential relevance in experimental biliary atresia, IGF-1 and IL-1-RAP. Using reporter assays, they confirmed that these two genes are direct targets of MIR-29. Although the function of these two RNA targets in experimental biliary atresia is not clear, in other models of of, uh, liver disease, the IGF-1 mRNA is associated with cholangiocyte survival and the IL-1 RAP with interleukin-1 signaling. Perhaps these genes really are relevant to the pathogenesis of biliary atresia. The first original hepatology and nutrition article is entitled Pediatric End-Stage Liver Disease Score in Acute Liver Failure to Assess Poor Prognosis by Sanchez and D'Agostino. The Pediatric End-Stage Liver Disease, or PELD score, has been used as a predictor of mortality in children with chronic liver disease listed for transplant. These authors looked at the prognostic ability of the PELD score in children with acute liver failure, calculating scores from the results of blood tests obtained at hospital admission in 40 consecutive patients under 18 with acute liver failure over a 10-year period, ending in 2009. Poor outcome was defined as liver transplantation or death. Mean age of patients was 5.3 years, and the etiologies of acute liver failure were hepatitis A in 42.5%, indeterminate in 35%, autoimmune in 17.5% and toxic in 5%. The mean PELD score was 34.9, with a range from 6 to 55. Admission PELD scores were significantly higher in non-survivors and recipients of liver transplant, where the mean was 39, compared with those who survived without liver transplant, in whom the mean was 31. A cutoff of 33 in PELD score, using receiver operating characteristic curves, had an 81% specificity and an 86% sensitivity for poor outcome, with a positive predictive value of 92% and negative predictive value of 69%. These authors feel that PELD score upon admission may help establish the best timing for liver transplant evaluation, but suggest that larger studies be done to validate their observations before widely applying this cutoff value. The next article is entitled Lactose Malabsorption, Calcium Intake, and Bone Mass in Children and Adolescents by De Silva Medeiros. These authors wanted to see whether there was any relationship between lactose tolerance and calcium intake and bone mass in children. They assessed lactose tolerance in 76 children by breath hydrogen, using a cut point of 20 parts per million over fasting to diagnose lactase deficiency. They assessed calcium intake by 48-hour dietary recall. Bone mineral content and bone mineral density were evaluated in the lumbar spine by DEXA analysis. The prevalence of lactose malabsorption was 61.8% in these children but there was no statistically significant difference between the tolerant and intolerant children with respect to calcium intake or intake of milk products. There was no difference in bone mineral content or bone mineral density between the two groups. Independent of lactose absorption capacity, it was observed that the majority of the subjects in both groups had sub-optimal calcium intake. The next article is entitled Prevalence and Outcome of Hepatobiliary Dysfunction in Neonatal Septicemia by Khalil and colleagues. In this study, 153 hospitalized neonates with positive blood cultures were recruited, and liver function tests were done on day 3 and day 10 after the positive culture. Infants with direct bilirubin greater than 20% of total or alanine aminotransferase greater than 50 units per liter were designated cholestatic and were followed for three months or until normalization of blood tests. Growth parameters were monitored. Klebsiella pneumoniae was the commonest organism, isolated in 95.4% of subjects. 54.2% of subjects had hepatobiliary dysfunction in the form of either cholestatic jaundice in 42% or abnormal transaminases in 37%. The onset of cholestasis occurred by the third day of sepsis in 80% with maximum value of direct bilirubin seen by the 10th day, in 90% of cases. Only 15% of infants continued to have cholestatic jaundice beyond 30 days of the onset of sepsis, and in these, cholestasis resolved in all by 60 days. Hepatic enzyme abnormalities followed a more protracted course, with onset by day 10 in 95%, peak value on day 38 in 90% and normalization on day 60 in 82% of subjects. Weight length and head circumference were not impacted by liver dysfunction. The authors concluded that hepatic dysfunction was common in gram-negative septicemia in these neonates, that the onset of cholestasis or hepatitis abnormalities was early and resolved in the vast majority within 2-3 to months, They actually found that the average bilirubin and AST in the infants who died of sepsis were lower than in survivors, probably because the infants who died of sepsis did so before they could actually become cholestatic, not because cholestasis protected the survivors. The first original GI article is entitled Significance of Abnormalities in Tissues Proximal and Distal, to the obstructed site of duodenal atresia by Alatas and colleagues. Even after surgery for duodenal atresia, the proximal duodenal segment may remain dilated and atonic, a major source of clinical morbidity. These authors tried to put a finger on the reason for the postoperative proximal duodenal dysmotility by studying resected duodenal segments of 12 patients with duodenal atresia and comparing them to age-matched controls. Resected samples were stained with antibodies to S100 protein, alpha smooth muscle actin, and CKIT protein. In segments proximal to the obstruction, the neuronal cells were decreased both in size and number. The circular musculature was hypertrophic. Unusual ectopic smooth muscle bundles were identified. The innermost layer of the circular musculature was thin. Interstitial cells of Cajal were decreased even around the myenteric plexus. Staining in the distal segments beyond the obstruction was similar to control tissues. These authors suggest that the changes in the proximal duodenal segment, whether primary or secondary to intrauterine obstruction, are likely the cause of postoperative duodenal dysmotility in these patients. The next article is entitled, Liprotomase, Long-Term Safety and Support of Nutritional Status in Pancreatic Insufficient Cystic Fibrosis, by Borowitz for the Liprotomase Study Group. Liprotomase is a non-porcine, highly purified enzyme preparation with good efficacy in fat and protein malabsorption in patients with pancreatic exocrine insufficiency. This article is a report on a Phase 3, 12-month, open-label trial of 214 pancreatic insufficient cystic fibrosis patients older than 7 years who received this preparation for enzyme replacement. Dosing started at one capsule of liprotomase containing 32,500 lipase units, 25,000 protease units, and 3,750 units of amorphous amylase with each meal or snack, with dose increases based on protocol-determined parameters. Anthropometrics and pulmonary functions were stable during this study. There were no changes in laboratory tests, including levels of fat-soluble vitamins. Liprotamase was generally well tolerated. Adverse events were mainly gastrointestinal and led to treatment discontinuation in 17% of the patients, usually within the first three months. Mean daily dose was 5.5 capsules. It appears that this preparation is safe for children unable to take standard enzyme replacement because of pork allergy. The next two short papers are entitled Clinical Presentation and Outcome of Solitary Rectal Ulcer Syndrome in Children by Blackburn and Solitary Rectal Ulcer Syndrome in Children and Adolescents by Parito and colleagues. These two studies present a total of 23 patients with solitary rectal ulcer syndrome. Together, they make good reading on a rare entity that always surprises us when we finally figure it out. There are two short commentaries on these papers that also stress staying alert for this interesting clinical entity that presents with straining, obstipation, rectal bleeding, and mucus discharge. The next article is entitled, No relation between disease activity measured by multiple methods and REE in childhood Crohn disease, by Wiskin and colleagues. Increased resting energy expenditure, REE, unmatched by increased caloric intake, is implicated as a cause of the poor nutrition in childhood inflammatory conditions. In this study, the authors tried to determine the effect of disease activity measured by clinical status, systemic and stool inflammatory markers, on REE in children with Crohn disease, using appropriate correction for confounding factors. They looked at 60 children with Crohn's disease and performed REE by indirect calorimetry on each child. Fat-free body mass was estimated by skin fold thickness. Disease activity was measured using C-reactive protein, erythrocyte sedimentation rate, fecal lactoferrin, and fecal calprotectin, and the pediatric Crohn disease activity index. Using multiple regression models, there was no significant difference in REE comparing patients with active or inactive disease by any of the markers of activity or the clinical index. Sad to say, the authors had to conclude that resting energy expenditure corrected for physiologically relevant confounders is not associated with the degree of disease activity predicted by clinical tools or inflammatory markers, and therefore that increased energy expenditure is an unlikely mechanism for the poor nutritional state associated with Crohn disease. The next article is entitled Comparison of fecal elastase-1 and pancreatic function testing in children by Wally and colleagues. These authors compared the results of fecal elastase-1 and secretin-stimulated pancreatic output in 70 children 6 months to 17 years old to see how well the two tests correlated. The average fecal elastase concentration was 403 micrograms per gram of stool. 11 children had concentrations less than 200 micrograms per gram, 23 had intermediate levels from 200 to 500 micrograms per gram, and 36 were normal above 500 micrograms per gram of stool. The average pancreatic elastase activity measured on direct pancreatic stimulation was 49 micromoles per milliliter per minute, and 11 children had activity below the established cutoff of 10.5 micromoles per milliliter per minute. Among the 11 children with pathologic pancreatic stimulation, 7 had normal fecal elastase, 4 were in the intermediate range, and none were in the low range. Among the 59 children with normal direct pancreatic stimulation, 11 had pathologic fecal elastase and 19 had intermediate fecal elastase results. The correlation between pancreatic elastase activity and fecal elastase 1 concentration was poor, with an R-value less than .190. The sensitivity of the fecal elastase 1 test was 41.7% and the specificity 49.2%. The positive predictive value of fecal elastase was only 14%. The authors caution that although the fecal elastase test is simple, non-invasive, and indirect, it can give false positive results and has low sensitivity in children with mild pancreatic insufficiency and in those with isolated pancreatic enzyme deficiencies. The next article is entitled Development of a Gastroenterology Educational Curriculum for Pediatric Residents Using Fellows as Teachers by Pentiuk and Baker. At many institutions, the teaching provided on subspecialty GI rotations is not structured. The purpose of the present study was to describe the development, implementation, and assessment of a structured GI curriculum for pediatric residents. The authors performed a needs assessment via a survey of former pediatric residents working in general pediatrics. Topics for the curriculum were developed based upon the needs assessment. Second-year residents on the inpatient GI rotation attended four case-based small group sessions per week for one month. Sessions were taught primarily by upper-level gastroenterology fellows. The curriculum was assessed in three ways. First, by pre- and post-testing second, post-rotation survey, and third, group feedback sessions. Resident rating of education received during the rotation was high. Post-test scores increased slightly, but significantly, compared with pre-test values. The curriculum has continued to be used for more than four years after its development. The authors made no attempt to find out whether this teaching method translated into better board scores, better practice, or better retention of material. These deficits aside, they have shown that it is possible to create a structured, subspecialty curriculum using fellows as teachers during a one-month elective. The next article is entitled Clinical Guideline Use of Enteral Nutrition for the Control of Intestinal Inflammation in Pediatric Crohn Disease from the NASPIGAN IBD Committee. Exclusive Enteral Nutrition is an effective yet often underused therapy for the induction of remission in pediatric Crohn disease. The North American Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology and Nutrition formed the Enteral Nutrition Working Group to review the use of enteral nutrition therapy in pediatric Crohn disease. The group was composed of five pediatric gastroenterologists and one pediatric nutritionist, all with an interest and or expertise in exclusive enteral nutrition. Specific attention was focused upon review of the evidence for efficacy of therapy, assessment of the variations in care, identification of barriers to widespread use, and a compilation of the necessary components for a successful program. The guideline is intended to aid physicians in developing an enteral nutrition therapy program and potentially to promote its use. This is a very nice and very practical review for physicians who would like to promote this safe and effective but difficult therapy for Crohn disease. Finally, I suggest you read a very beautiful case report by Go and colleagues describing the identification of a recessive twinkle mutation causing acute liver failure in a very young infant. This is an important case in which the twinkle protein, a DNA helicase, essential for maintenance of mitochondrial DNA, was identified as the genetic source of fatal liver failure. I think the case discussion is very informative, but I still wonder where the heck these crazy acronyms come from. This concludes the JPGN podcast for February 2012. For more information regarding the contents of this issue, or to access complete articles, visit the JPGN website, at jpgn.org or the naspigan website at naspigan.org jpgn is the official journal of espigan and naspigan the co-editors are mel Heyman and david bransky i'm judy sondheimer <laughs>